somebody out there must have wished upon a star because it's time for another brand new episode of Magic by Design. If you're an old friend of the show or listening for the first time, thanks so much for tuning in. We are delighted to have you on board. My name is Ken and I am joined as always by my co-host slash brother Garrett. Garrett, how are you? Hey, how we doing? People are wrong. Oh, straight out the case. My hot take immediately coming out of this podcast based off recent episodes of Magic by Design and films we've watched is that too many people have nostalgia for Emperor's New Groove and not enough people have nostalgia for Atlantis or Treasure Planet. Coming straight in with hot takes. Ooh. Uh, of course, well, Lone Stitch, it, it doesn't even count. It's the best film of all time. But the, the, the broader B-tier Disney films that people don't really remember. Dinosaur, just throw it out the window. No one cares. Nobody likes Dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> and for good reason. It's strange how most of the films of this era have been forgotten to time. Well, like in that tier, I think Emperor's New Groove has the most like groundswell of people who still like it. Uh, Treasure Planet is probably second. You see some Treasure Planet love, but not a ton of it. And Atlantis is just a film nobody talks about as well. But it's unfair because it's actually quite a good film. So it's it, yeah, these are the, the weird post-Renaissance films that people have forgotten or have now only very small subsects of fans, except for Emperor's New Groove, which I think is a larger subsect of fans for reasons passing comprehension. Okay, good start. But, uh, Emperor's New Groove is clearly my new um, Aristocats. I've moved on from Aristoburying Aristocats to Emperor's New Groove. Like that's uh, that's you've, you've the, grown throughout the podcast. It's the natural progression, and th- like this this episode, of course, is the the final episode of the Disney Young Boy Adventure trilogy. Actually, not really Young Boy, more t- Teen Adventure trilogy, which is a uh, uh, Black Cauldron, Atlantis, and Treasure Planet. I've never heard that said before. Is that something you've just made up? Yes. But these, I, th- I think these films couple together in, in a way that makes sense. Like, the biggest flaw with the Treasure Planet, as we get straight into it before you can even finish the introduction... That's fine, we're into it now. ...is that uh, Atlantis exists. That's the biggest yeah. problem with Treasure Planet, is yeah. Atlantis exists. I, I was just going to say that there's a direct comparison, and it doesn't come out favourably, but see, I don't think that's fair either. If You see, if you had never seen Atlantis and you watched Treasure Planet, I think you'd enjoy, you'd enjoy Treasure Planet a great deal. Yeah. Similarly, if you'd watched Treasure Planet first then watched Atlantis second, you'd probably have a poorer opinion of Atlantis because they're very similar films. Yeah. And both of them are very like competent, good, fun adventure films. Again, not to bury the lead before we've been finishing the introduction. But but it, it doesn't help that these films have been released so close together. They're, they're, they're like, it's only Lilo and Stitch in between them, buffering them. And it doesn't help that they are very similar, going for a very similar tone and a very similar audience and a very similar, yeah, a very similar concept. Pretty much. It's that finding a lost world or yeah, adventure. The unlikely hero and all these kind of things. Like, I have a vague awareness of the characters in this movie, uh, but I've never seen it before the podcast. I know you've seen it before as well. Yeah, I did a random watch of it one night. I don't even remember what led me to doing a random watch of Treasure Planet, but I did a random watch of Treasure Planet. And I remember liking it less when I watched it then than I did now. So that's that's a plus for it. It's grown on you. Until Disney Plus, you either had to order it or wait for it to come on TV. Or and- find it via perfectly legal means on the <laughs> internet, yeah. <laughs> and for, for a long time, Disney weren't keen to put their movies on TV that much. They're, Especially this, because yeah. this is a flop. Like, this is one of the bigger Disney flops in a while. Like, this is a floppity flop. Like, they envisaged Treasure Planet being a franchise, yeah. and they were just like, no. <laughs> I wasn't inclined to buy this on home video, or pirate it, because I'm a good boy. So, uh, I, I hadn't... Pirate, get it? I just got that. Gar, because we're pirates in space. Yeah. So, I didn't really get around to watching it, but then when we started the podcast, I said, may as well wait for the podcast, you know? Mm. I can watch it anytime I want now, it's at my fingertips. But... Yeah, you can watch it again if you want. 
where you can play one of the, I think, two video games that were made based on it. Jumping into the background, Garrett, this film is directed by Ron Clements and John Musker of Little Mermaid, Aladdin and Hercules fame. Yeah, the real, like, it's an A-team. Those are, like, the heavy hitters of the studio. And this is their first film in a while as well. And as we know from previous podcasts, because we've touched on it, they were trying to get this film made for some time. They first pitched the project back in 1985, then again in 1989, following the release of The Little Mermaid, pitched a third time following the release of Aladdin. So after each tentpole success, they're like, can we make our movie now? Can you please? We've we've given you three beloved monstrous hits that still live on in the hearts of people to this day. Can you please let us make our Space Pirates movie? I know you just made Muppet Treasure Island, so we've already tread the ground of Treasure Island. And they made a Treasure Island game film back in the 60s as well. So, this, so this is their third time doing Treasure Island. And again, Muppet's Treasure Island was uh, six years. This was 02? Yeah, six years before this. So it's like Muppet Treasure Island is still relatively fresh in the mind, which by the way, Love Let Us Here and Muppet, Muppet Treasure Island. Great song. Love Let Us Here. Bye bye. We're where we belong. Will we get the Muppets films eventually on, on this well, podcast? Well- they are in the Disney canon now, guys. So when we perhaps. run out of animated things to watch, we have to move on to the Muppets. Yeah, why not? Which, by the way, the Muppet Show dropped on Disney Plus this week. Have you watched any of it? I have not. I've been saving it. Fake Muppet fan. I've watched five episodes. Which of the two of us has their own Muppet? That's true. You do have your own Muppet. Where, is, where is your Muppet? He's in the wardrobe in my old bedroom. <laughs> Creepy. Is that yeah, just waiting. <laughs> yes. But uh, Muppet Show holds up so well, like so well. It's so funny. Well, I think that vaudeville thing is timeless it's dated in a sense it's, it's a has a very specific sense of time and place but also it just that's i suppose it's that broad slapstick humor that can apply in any yeah i saw any someone era. tweet that like the muppets is distilled down to wordplay and chaos and i'm like yeah it's wordplay and chaos and that's timeless you can't go wrong with wordplay and chaos because they're like a oh, witty wordplay it's very good and I, I like i watched five episodes and it's like that's a very good observation person who i go i don't remember but yeah the muppet show god what a great show that is it's so funny. And like it's it's legitimately still funny. And I, I I hate Saturday Night Live. I think it's terrible and it's never been funny. It's an entire like 70 year run or whatever. I think if there's anything worth watching, you just watch it on YouTube now. Yeah. So why why has the Saturday Night Live still persisted, but the Muppet Show hasn't? When the Muppet Show is much better. Also, Disney bring back the Muppet Show. Come on. Yeah, they gave us Muppets Now, which was somewhat of a a Muppet Show successor, but not quite. And then there's that web show that I watched one episode of. What was that called? Was that Muppets Now? Yeah. The, the, the recent one. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I know Muppets that now. they did a Disney Channel version of The Muppet Show briefly, didn't Muppets they? Muppets Tonight, yeah. Yeah, so. Like Muppets With Clifford now, as the host, weirdly. Yeah. But come on, it's Kermit. But, yeah, Muppets. Muppets are great. Disney, stop making The Muppets irrelevant. What are you yeah, doing? Stop sleeping on The Muppets. There's Just lo- let The Muppets yeah. do a Marvel film. Yeah. Like, like, let them do a Marvel film. Muppets yeah. should be in the MCU. They should do that crossover. Or Muppets Star Wars. How could you, have they not done it? Like, a Muppets Star Wars film would be very good. They would, they would be very good with Star Wars. Yeah, they've done all that stuff with Lego, so it's like Muppet Star Wars, Muppet Iron Man, Muppet mm. Captain America. Muppet it's Moana. It's endless. <laughs> Muppet Lilo and Stitch. Which actually would be quite easy. Stitch as a puppet would be great. Did, did, oh, that's what the live action remake should be. It should just be a Muppet movie. Did you see the, the posters they did for the launch? They did it Muppet versions of Disney Plus shows. Yeah. Very funny. I would watch Muppet Musical, the musical, the Muppet Show. <laughs> Got yeah. there in the end. But yes, uh, our, our, me mentioning Muppet Treasure Island has led us into a, onto a, a Muppet tangent, which will bring us back to them trying to make Treasure Planet. Can continue. So Jeffrey Katzenberg wasn't interested after the post-Aladdin pitch. They went over his head to Roy E. Disney, who backed them and made it known to Michael Eisner that he wanted them to greenlight the project. So they were given permission to begin development on Treasure Planet when they concluded work on Hercules. So from the 
the initial 1985 pitch, principal animation for the film began in 2000, 15 years later. Yeah, and even like from the approved in 95, it took another five years to start making it. Well, they had to finish Hercules and then there was pre-development, so I imagine... Yeah, the timeline fits quite snugly there. They began with roughly 350 crew members working on it. In 2002, producer Roy Connolly estimated that there were around 1,027 crew members listed in the screen credits, with about 400 artists and computer artists, about 150 musicians, and another 200 technologists. That's a lot of people for a film that doesn't seem like it should need... Actually, there are there are some 3D scenes in this film that are, like, stunning and, like, yeah. really detailed particularly the, the the spaceport at the start of the film when they're like zooming in on the spaceport and they show the full bustling spaceport moon thingy yeah. with all the thing what all the stuff happening before they close in on like the more standard regular 2d shot and like that is like extremely impressive it looks very very good it looks very good to 2021 eyes which is rare for these films and they're 3d and like this film starts with 3d because it's like 3d space fights i think the spaceport is one of the parts of the film where they managed to successfully blend the 2D and 3D. It does have a distinctly 3D and graphical look, but and then it they zooms in, it. and yeah, and then it zooms yeah. into the and it, it feels seamless. It doesn't feel like and now we're suddenly jarringly moving from 3D to 2D. Uh, and this film took a bit of a novel approach in that all the elements besides the characters are 3D. Mm-hmm. So like. When they interact with them, they paint over them in a kind of a 2D effect, but like it's mostly 3D sets with 2D characters, which is difficult to pull off. And I, 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 like, I'll, I'll be honest, I wouldn't be like, it, do, it looks distinctly different from Disney's films, which it kind of doesn't. But on the flip side, I would also be like, oh God, that's an experiment gone terribly wrong. It just looks like a Disney film, which I think is a, a success for these kind of things then. At a budget of 140 million, that's 203.5 million in 2021, it was the most expensive animated movie ever produced at the time. And Did- flop. Yeah. <laughs> Disney seem to have broken their own record multiple times over the years in this regard. As you said, financial flop, making less than its budget at the box office. Approximately 110 million, that's 160 million. So you're looking at approximately a 45 million loss there. That's not counting marketing either. So. Yeah. It came up against stiff competition in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, Die Another Day and The Santa Claus 2. Oh yeah, Tim Allen killed it. <laughs> Critics praised the film's animation. They thought it was beautiful in places, as you referenced there. They're right, it is beautiful in places. The fast pace and humour, but criticised the characters' needless space setting and failure to capture the appeal of the source material. What do they mean, needless space setting? Uh, Some critics thought they just should have done a straight Treasure Island. Why? They already did it. Like, I don't know. Go have some fun and do weird shit (laughs) in space. Why not? Why would you not do that? To your point, Garrett, as you said, this is the third Disney adaptation of the novel following Treasure Island in 1950 and Muppet Treasure Island only six years before. Yeah, so you might as well do something different. And like, yeah. the book exists. People can read the book. Why not do something weird and wacky with the book? Treasure Island in space. That's Go why, for it. That's why I mentioned it, because they've done a straight adaptation. They've done a Muppet adaptation. So when they're doing it, again, especially so soon after Muppet Treasure Island, you're going to want to change it up. Especially doing it in an animated film, where like the boundaries of what you can do with it are, are basically limitless. It's basically whatever your imagination can come up with for Treasure Island is what you can do with Treasure Island. So why not do something weird and wonderful and something that just could not be done in live action at the time and probably could be done in live action now and probably will be, knowing them. But well, Which again, like do- Atlantis, I know this film, humongous flop, so maybe they won't be like, let's redo Treasure Planet because it was a humongous flop. But 
again, similar to Atlantis, it would be a very good live action film. I think they might get there eventually because they're doing all the A and B tier now. So they're going to get there eventually. They're like, okay, we've remade them all. May as well go for the ones that nobody liked and try to redeem them. Especially it's like Disney Plus ones or something. Actually, and, and you know, and there's actually a big reason why they might not. This film is basically Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. And they own Star Wars now. So. Even the music is like, which actually really good score. I like the score of this film a lot. But it feels very Star Wars, like top to bottom. And that, like, Jim Hawkins is basically Anakin Skywalker from that year before he went psycho and murdered some kids <laughs> like yeah. that cocky protagonist he probably has a little more heart than Anakin did but he it very much feels like an early 2000s uh, protagonist where he's kind of cool and cocky and a little bit edgy and it's Star Wars wise cracks yeah, this whole thing is Star Wars, and it's it's actually it's probably better than half the Star Wars films, so it has that going for it. But yeah, I I think Star Wars has a fifty percent hit rate. Like this oh, film is better than all of the Star Wars prequels. So Ooh, heavy shot. Yeah, those films are bad. I like the Phantom Menace. No, it's bad. Actually, Phantom Menace is the best of them, but yeah. the, the, oh God, the rest of them are terrible. Gar, as we said, one of the film's goals was to blend the different mediums of animation into one film and have a seamless finish. So you have the 3D backgrounds, the 3D models and the 2D models and I think there was points where that was successful as you said the spaceport being a prime example mm. but there were other times where it stuck out and I, I would I'd never say it's seamless like no. that that's that sequence where they're coming in the spaceport which I think looks really good and it's like really detailed but it's 3D animation I think that's the 3D bit just like they open the 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 film on like those space wars and with those big spaceships and panning around like and i love the idea of these like space pirate ships i think they're so cool like just pirate ships in space that's a cool idea get out of here these people being like you shouldn't have put this in space that's a good point uh, the crew operated on a 70 30 law implemented by ron clemens so he said that the artwork should be 70 percent traditional and 30 percent sci-fi so in other films they might have gone the other direction where it's like 70 percent sci-fi like cold hard metal or whatever but then there's just the pirate flag on top or something yeah. yeah so this is like stuff that looks analog but it's of space origin so it has like a advanced technology integrated into something that looks old which is very cool yeah i think that ended up being like a i'm not sure was it the intent to kind of maintain the more of a pirate aesthetic than a space aesthetic but i think that worked out very well for the film yeah i think early on they had a more i suppose what how, you, how would you describe it um star wars yeah <laughs> it was even more star wars at the start yeah more alien than treasure Island if you know what I mean. Yeah, and there's not like that many aliens in this movie. There's no. some, but... They fell into that trap that you said last week you didn't like, that they made them all a bit ugly. Yeah. Whereas in the little unstitched, they're quite appealing. But I guess there's, there's supposedly they're meant to be ugly, because there's that one alien who cuts the... the the rope of that dude uh, names I'm terrible with names in these songs this is the reason you have Wikipedia in front of you Ken because you can remember it was Mr. Arrow who had his rope cut and Scroop I don't think Scroop is ever named in this film if he is I don't no. remember but Scroop is the Mr. Tarantula Scorpion yes who cuts the rope who, who looks like the most uh, but like he's meant to be like sinister looking and he looks sinister so I'm okay with that Musker and Clements wanted to be able to move the camera around a lot in the mode of Steven Spielberg and James Cameron so so actually, in, in the end, the delay in production was beneficial because the technology could catch up with their vision. The, the animators took Deep Canvas, the technology, as we know, which was developed initially for Tarzan, and came up with a process that they called virtual sets, wherein they created entire 360 degree sets before they began staging scenes. Combining this process with traditionally drawn characters to achieve a painted image with depth perception. I think that's, as you said, the times when this works, it really works. But when it doesn't, it is very jarring. I don't think it's jarring. I just think it's not like 
it's, it's not the thing they wanted it to be in that it's not this seamless thing where you don't notice the difference. But I think it always looks fine. And the thing is, if you're making comparisons to Atlantis, Atlantis does do that quite seamlessly. I would have said Atlantis, but Atlantis like sticks out like a sore thumb when they do 3D scenes. Though. Yeah. Like when they're panning around the submarine, it's like, oh, look, it's the 3D time. I think maybe they used it less. So it's stuck. Yeah, it's, Atlantis, is, I think, is a lot more traditionally animated. Fun fact here, Gar. In order to test how a computer generated body parts, specifically John Silver's cyborg arm, would mesh with traditional animation, the crew took a clip of Captain Hook from Peter Pan and replaced him with a cyborg arm. So nice. That, I'd watch that film. That, cyborg Hook? That exists somewhere else. I guess there. this is that film in some ways. But <laughs> One of the things that Connolly, the producer, noted as well was that they wanted to create a space world that was warm and had life to it, uh, much more than you'd normally think of in a science fiction film, as opposed to stainless steel, blue, smoke, kind of inky blacks. That's the one thing, I like. if you want me to describe the colour palette or the feeling of this film, there is a lot of warmth. Like There's a lot of oranges, reds. The Very characters. homely. Yeah. Even like the, the opening like sequence of this film takes place on like just a regular tavern that just happens to be in space. Yeah. Which space I kinda tavern. like. You know, like the cantina in Star Wars is very like when they pan through that scene, it's like, look at all these mysterious aliens and this is very space like as opposed to here when they, this is just a, a, a tavern that happens to be in space. Which I think is quite cool. The character animation in this is quite, especially when it comes to the humans, I think it's somewhere between the sophistication you would see in like Beauty and the Beast, but also the simplicity you would see in, in the likes of maybe Atlantis or Lilo and Stitch. Actually, it reminds me most closely of The Little Mermaid, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's very Clemens and Musker. I like, I think the character, particularly the, like the designs of the main character, like Jim Hawkins, I think, is a very distinct and memorable looking character, as yes. opposed to the character in Atlantis, whose name's I don't, name I don't even Milo. remember. Milo, who's like a very bland looking character when you think about it and he's, he's kind of meant to be because he's like a dork so he's not meant to be this like dashing charming hero in the same way that Jim Hawkins ends up being but I think Jim Hawkins is a memorable character I think Silver is a very memorable character design with his weird face it's not going on in his face yeah I think he's supposed to be one of those animal type characters as well not a dog or a cat like the other characters are something like a sea creature to me or something like that. Which maybe, yeah, that's what they're going for. Like Long John Silver is what he's meant to be. So. Yeah. And he's part machine as well. I liked the way, like, like you don't notice it, but sometimes if you look closely, you see that, you know, the piece on the side of his head is working or his arm or his leg, you can see the workings. Mm. So, like, it's something that goes in the background, but if you pay attention to it, it's just really intricate. So attention to detail that, like, they could have just made his arm silver and there you go. <laughs> yeah, so it's always moving and it's alive. So I really liked that. So can when is he called Silver because he is a cyborg, or is it just a, a, a cruel twist of irony that he's called Silver and happens to be half Silver? Perhaps he adopted the name afterwards. Ah, so what's his what's his shoot name, Ken? What's his real name? Brother Smith. Ah, right. Well, like most people of the time. <laughs> yes, most people in space during that era. This is a science fiction adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's 1883 adventure novel. Uh, I haven't I read didn't it. read, by no, the way. No, I, I, I forgot it. that was a whole thing we used to do, where I used to pretend I'd at least try and read the book. And we'd thrown that one out the window long ago. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things, I, I, I'm, I'm always keen to go back and read those things, like Wind in the Willows, we did that. And like, I'd like to just sit down and read those books someday. Especially like uh, like the HD, I've never read any like the, the H.G. Wells sci-fi or any of the Robert Louis, Louis Stevenson adventure books, which are probably like more up my street than the like more classic dramas of the era. Because who doesn't love adventure? And I'm a child who just needs like serotonin to kick off in his brain every so often. <laughs> Stuff needs to happen, Ken. 
Yes, and in fairness, from what I've seen of adaptations, there's a lot of different acts in this book. You know, there's the before part, as we said, with the tavern. There's when they set sail, there's the mutiny, there's the quest for the treasure, there's the aftermath. So there's a lot the of different bit where parts. Miss Piggy's dangling over a cliff. Of course, that's a, a classic part of the novel as well. Mm-hmm. Piggy's design, back to the Muppets. I heard uh, Miss Piggy's design in the early Muppets. I just took off my glasses if you can't hear that. I, I don't like it. I'm, I'm very much on board with their redesign of Miss Piggy in later years. Yeah, Miss Piggy's eyes looked very light previously yeah there's nothing going on i think it might have been just like piggy was more of a side character then whereas like piggy is the muppets now probably to two she's gone too far with the other side there's too much piggy these days yeah if you look at muppets now she's in like 80 percent of it yeah so it's like whoa dial back on the piggy a little though someone tweeted that miss piggy should be a judge on rupaul's drag race i'm like yes how has that not happened um citing tweets that i don't remember the names of people who sent them this week that's Uh, of course the the theme on this podcast of course um what would be the the sketch of rupaul's drag race if you're to do it on the Muppet Show, what would you call it? Uh, Rue Pig's Drag Race? Um, no, no. I'll, I'll workshop it. <laughs> I can't realize he had nothing for the show. <laughs> Makers wanted to make the film fun by creating because the original book wasn't by creating more exciting action sequences, and because they believed that having the characters wear space helmets and suits would take out the romance of it. They, Good call. The crew created the concept of Ethereum, so that's an outer space filled with atmosphere they do reference it but they don't actually go that much into it yeah it's just basically they can all breathe and it's fine they, like they do reference the gravity part because yeah. the ship has this gravity modulator thing that keeps them on board but they, they, they can just breathe in space it's fine and I, i'm okay with that honestly the whole yeah. like whoa we can't breathe that stuff is who cares no one watches space stuff for that yeah and they do like they do kind of explain it away quickly, but they're better off than getting bogged down in lore. It's a kids' film at the end. Yeah, isn't it? and there's a lot of lore in this film, anyway. <laughs> but which, by the way, like the whole premise of Captain Flint being like this dude who had a magic portal who teleported all over the world to rob people blind and disappear into nothing. That rules so much. I really liked that because it makes sense why he has all this treasure because he can literally zip in, take it, and disappear again. And I thought that was a cool twist. I also liked the twist on where the treasure was at the core of this planet. So the treasure was the planet. Yeah. It's literally it's, treasure planet. It's the literal treasure planet, Ken. I love how petty Flint was. That just like when people try to steal his treasure, he just destroys the planet <laughs> and destroys the treasure rather than have people take it from him. And he's just dead there, sitting in bones, waiting for it to go down with them. What if they saw this little tripwire thing and he was like, "Oop, step over it," and then I yeah. can I can plunder all your treasure now, pal. I'm assuming there were more booby traps. Writer Rob Edwards said it was really challenging to take the classic novel and set it in outer space. They did away with a lot of the, the traditional science fiction elements but i think that really benefited the film they leaned more into the fantasy elements than Mm. i suppose the 80s science fiction tropes and as i said making the the ships and the um technology more organic looking it's not so much steampunk i suppose it was just just flying pirate ships it's cool (laughs) or like maps hidden in puzzle balls and stuff like that so like they have which by the way that puzzle ball clearly has some like intricate solution to it that jim hawkins just happened to stumble across the first time he held it in his hands i think they implied that your savant i think they implied that your man showed him before he died is he a savant he's a savant joseph gordon levitt he's 40 years old now i looked this up it's like he seems like he's still young to me but he's been around a long time he voices jim hawkins garrett I, I, I'm going to push back a little bit. I, I think that he's a bit bland and he, he's kind of a, an archetypal edgy, I'm doing air quotes, male protagonist in the 90s mold. Yeah, but I like it. He would, this, this would have been, yeah, third, third, third Rock in the Sun is before this, isn't it? So he's yeah. a known quantity at the stage, Joseph. I will say his accent kind of veers. <laughs> he's like, he does New York for quite a lot of it. When he's trying to be like confrontational, he's like, I'm walking here. Yeah, he veers into New York for bits and then just completely drops it, which is, I don't 
I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I like Jim Hawkins. He's, he's not the most exciting or re- revelatory character in the world. But it's like, I don't think they've delved into dad issues in any of these films yet, have they? Yeah, I don't think they went that far into that, though, really. That's literally what the film is about. Yeah, but... That Silver is a replacement for his father. That's the entire narrative of the film, Ken. And he's a reluctant replacement because he... he I was going to say he falls for Jim. That makes it sound romantic. Yeah, but he, he takes Jim on as his, as his apprentice. And he goes and soft. He, he realises that he cares for Jim, but then but still betrays Jim. But ultimately, Jim saves him, actually. He doesn't save Jim. Actually, no, he does save Jim on Treasure Planet. Then, so they returns the favour. They save each other and then he lets him go free, even though he probably shouldn't. I think, like, that gives the film... Like, it's, it's nothing like that has the same punch that Lilo and Stitch has but it does give the film a bit of an emotional hook yeah because again this is a film with no villain essentially well the Silver's still the villain like undeniably but he's he's more of a reluctant villain or, or villain with shades of grey yeah. as opposed to like just a straight mustache twirling bad guy which probably makes him a more interesting villain because he's oscillating between he wants to achieve his lifelong dream of getting all this treasure Mm -hmm. but then he comes to care for Jim as we said and And like there's the worst version of this film where he just betrays Jim and he's just the bad guy and then he gets killed and that's just lazy and who cares and I think the version they go for where like he he does betray Jim he kidnaps them multiple times guides them to the centre of Treasure Planet but then like somewhat redeems himself but not fully redeems himself so like I like that there's there's layers there as opposed to Shades of Grey as they say yeah I always push back in Shades of Grey because it's the thing Vince Russo used to say about things in wrestling which was just an excuse for all characters being like morally ambiguous and bad instead of characters just having actual different shades and different layers it should be like an onion ken in that maybe there's something on the outside but there's more on the inside and it should get deeper as you dig in as opposed to it should be this moral nothingness where everybody so should be like shrek yes ogres are like onions ogres right? are like onions ken that's a dreamworks film we're not allowed to mention oh, sh- sorry. other than like the, the vince russo wrestling thing where it's like everybody can just be a different character week to week and that's quote-unquote shades of gray when it's just bad writing terry rossio who worked on the script later argued that the filmmakers made a crucial mistake in turning jim hawkins into an adolescent teen why he said treasure island the book is a boy's adventure about a young cabin boy who matches wits with a crew of bloodthirsty pirates all of the key scenes are made more dramatic by the fact that it's a young kid who is in danger treasure planet made the the kid into a young man which dilutes the drama of all the situations start to finish instead of being an amazing and impressive kid he became a petulant and unimpressive teen i disagree yeah I, i i'm somewhere in the middle on that because i wasn't blown away by the characterization i wasn't rooting for jim as much as they wanted me to but i do think that there is a some somewhat of a satisfying arc there that he finds a father figure and also he feels like he's searching for something his entire life that he already had mm-hmm. so like he goes away to space and you know he goes after that adventure but what, what he really realized was that the treasure he found was his father surrogate <laughs> no but like you know he, he comes back and like, he's content to the you know to be with his, his well now his extended family mm-hmm. and you know he does start his career in the space admiral force force thing sure. but you know it's just that the thing he was looking for was in front of him the entire time and he had to go away to find that yeah and niles was right that i'm not he's niles yeah. <laughs> it was right that, that he just had to go to space for a few months to find himself but the reason i disagree is that if you age jim hawkins down you have to completely rewrite this movie yeah that's a fair point like th- this is a movie aimed at the teenagers which is the reason jim hawkins ends up being a teen which makes perfect sense and but if you make jim hawkins a nine-year-old 
you have to completely rewrite this movie. And it would have to have a villain, I think. Yeah, it would have to be a completely different film. It wouldn't work if he was a nine-year-old. On the teen front, there's no love interest for Jim in this film. Just refreshing. Yeah, because Clemens and Musker, they tend to go for that trope quite a lot. Like, there is, like, a love interest between Amelia and and Niles. What's Niles' name? Doppler? Delbert Dobbin? He's Niles. (laughs) Played, if you don't know why I'm calling him Niles, he's played by David Hyde Pierce of uh, Frasier fame. He's Niles. So they they kind of pay off that plot that they usually go for there. They kind of impress each other. They court each other without knowing and then at the end they have a lot of babies. That's, like, that bit tied off in the yeah so if, you're, the, if you're ticking off the tropes so if like they focus tested it and it's like we need a love interest that's where they shoved it in and it's fine i i, I have no feelings good or bad about niles and amelia's love interest here i think that would have distracted from the movie because as we said i think it's about jim's growth and the relationship between him and silver i think that's the crux of the movie as you said yeah that's like the the emotional heart is the thing that makes this film interesting compared to atlantis it's the thing atlantis doesn't really have yeah. where atlantis atlantis is actually the opposite and atlantis ends up being that love story and it's a little may at the end yeah. whereas this it's like jim has a very separate distinct arc that it's that it's a kind of story they haven't told yet which i think is interesting and makes it unique and as i said it doesn't have that lilo and stitch punch but it does have something that these films haven't told yet so that it has that going for it i like that do you have any more thoughts on the story gar i think the cast are very good i know you hate joseph gordon levitt um but... i don't, I, don't I, I suppose i just think he's serving a bit of an archetype here but yeah you know, he, he does imbue it with a sense of of life and attitude mm. like he does he fills the brief well but i just think there's no new ground there so it's, it's not really the except for the wandering accent it's not really the performance you have an issue with more like the just the, the what the character is meant to be. Yeah, yeah. Emma Thompson, very good as Amelia. Yes, a, a strong female character, which you know we don't always see in these films. Even though she gets shot, nearly dies. Yeah, but then she comes through in the end. All right. David Hyde Pierce is playing Niles. He's just Niles, yeah. but you know. <laughs> Have uh, you seen any Frasier? I, I did watch quite a lot of Frasier, yeah. So yeah, he's Niles. <laughs> yeah, he's played Niles for most of his career, in fairness. Which, why not? Once you find that one gig. Actually, the one thing I really didn't like about this film, and it's telling we haven't mentioned the character. Oh, Martin Short? Yeah, Martin Short is Ben. Don't like it at all. And, and it's one of those things, like, he, he's that device in the film that advances the plot, leads them to the treasure. He does a lot of exposition as well. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things, like, we're quite far into the film when he comes in. Yeah. And it just seems needless. And I feel like you could have rewritten this film very easily and taking them out yeah like they could have like if you just took out the entire Ben section and had him just find the little hole where they put the thing in and it reveals the thing or you could even find some kind of drone or something that doesn't talk that but like they, no you could take Ben out entirely you could yeah. take that entire section out and, and like, like uh, Jim finds that hole opens the door which he doesn't do with Ben's help and like they can work out that the thing is self-destructing without freaking Ben being like I got my memories back it's about to blow up I think that would become fairly self-evident quite quickly I yeah. think they'd work out what's happening there so like, like i don't i don't like the performance i think it's I, overbearing i think if we're talking about the clements and musker formula that's the bit for the kids along with morph as well no, no, i was gonna say morph i actually you know that is the morph I, is a parrot which i thought was quite clever yeah as a thing i didn't get that ah morph is a parrot gary jim silver has a parrot that i i didn't include john that. silver sorry that makes me like it even more but i think morph is fine as a thing for the kids morph is a nice little side character he's the he's not talking but he's like the, the goofy uh space parrot space parrot yes whereas ben i just i don't like the performance i think he's really annoying and really overbearing and it feels like a Robin Williams parody it feels like they wanted Robin Williams to do Ben couldn't get him and it's like alright Martin Short you go do Robin Williams instead I guess yeah, he has that kind of manic energy but it, fe- it does feel like a parody doesn't it even though he's probably going longer than Robin Williams so maybe Robin, Robin, it's the other way around Robin Williams is inspired by him but I think Robin Williams 
eclipsed him. Yeah. So it does feel like, and I suppose... It, it feels like, like, oh God, this is what Genie could have been in, yeah. <laughs> in yeah. less sure hands. Yeah, but in, but in the chronology of our experience, Genie came first. So even if Martin Short was an inspiration for Robin Williams, perhaps. Nonetheless, he, still, he did an inferior version of a very similar routine in a Disney film. I can't really remember the name of the actor that played John Silver, but he's South African, I think. I looked yeah, Brian Murray. Yeah, he's somewhere between kind of a... It's basically an Irish accent, yeah. and I find it a bit distracting at times. Well, I was like, oh, an Irish actor. It's like, oh, no, he's not an Irish actor. Yeah. Cultural appropriation. <laughs> but like, is pirate... Irish? Uh, well, like, like the yar, you know, that I can see why someone would translate that into a, a roughly Irish accent, because I think... It does have an Irish lilt to it, doesn't it? Yeah, there's, there's like a shanty lilt to it that I think kind of matches our lyrical sense of wordplay and... Well, at least what Americans think our lyrical sense of wordplay is. Yeah, I have a very lyrical voice. We don't talk like that anymore, Gary. Oh, faith and begar, diddly I. here we go. I, I can see why someone would connect those dots. Nice if they got an Irish actor to do it, but sure. Who would they have gotten? Uh, Liam Neeson? No, what's his name? Um, no, oh, was he already dead? No, he wouldn't. Have, well, he would have been dead by then, but when it was produced, he wouldn't be dead. Who was the original Dumbledore again? Uh, oh what can't I remember? Yeah. Oh, God. Richard Harris. Yes, Richard Harris. Yeah. But he uh, he has too much gravitas. The, uh, what's his name? Brendan the Guard. Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson. Ah, yeah. Brendan Gleeson. Yeah, it good, would have been yeah, Brendan yeah. Gleeson. Okay, so one more note I have in the story here. The escape in the finale is thrilling, and mm-hmm. I think it's the best use of 3D in the movie, where Jim is surfing through the debris and the falling things to get to the... The portal first, to change yeah. it so they can all get through with the safety. Yeah. Which, how did they know that the explosion wouldn't just blow up the planet they wanted to? <laughs> yeah, it did follow them through, but they I guess the, it. the gate closed then when they went through. I like this film. And I like, like, I want, this is the first one we didn't watch together again, God. I know, in the 43 run episode of the podcast, it's the first one that we did not watch together. I felt betrayed. Yeah, but, uh, but I watched it over a day ago now, so I've been stewing on it. And I'm like, the more I think about it, it's like, I like this film. I think for me, I, well, I watched it when I was supposed to be working. Um, <gasps> so, shock and awe. I probably shouldn't admit that on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> But you should edit that out. Yeah. Uh, Ken, you admitted on a podcast that you were watching movies while working? Yeah, nobody listens to this podcast. It's fine. Don't you have colleagues that listen to this podcast? I do, but they're not going to tell on me. So I was a bit, I was a bit distracted. Uh, I, I was paying attention to it. It wasn't on in the background. But I feel as if... I think you hit the nail on the head there where... I compared it less favorably to Atlantis, Mm -hmm. which I feel like I enjoyed more. So I feel like it was retreading the same ground, even though it's probably in development for longer. And it's just archetypally, it's a ragtag group of uh, people who don't get along, some of which who will betray the others, searching for this lost thing that has never been found. They find it and uh, then some horrible calamity ensues. Like, yeah. there you go. It, they're, they're, they're both archetypally the same film. One is more of a love interest side. The other, somebody searching for a father figure. I think the father figure side is more interesting. But again, it, like if you'd watch this film before you'd watch Atlantis, I think you'd like this film more than Atlantis and vice versa. But if you take it in isolation, I think it had a lot going for it. But I think the fact that this was like 17 years in the making. Mm-hmm. And I think if a film's in development for that long... <laughs> it's gotta be good or else. It, but it's also maybe like sometimes it just becomes very far away from what it was supposed to be in the beginning. I think if they made this in the 90s, it would have been maybe a less visually sophisticated film, but at the same time, I think it would have had the heart and maybe some of the songs that... uh 
It would have had more. This film does have original songs. It does. It, and moving on quickly to the songs, Gar, the, the musical score was composed by James Newton Howard, a Disney go-to guy at the time, it seems, while a couple of the songs were written and performed by John Resnick from the Goo Goo Dolls. Ah, that makes sense. Because I, I heard these songs, and it's like, oh, it's the Goo Goo Dolls. And then I looked it up, and it's like, oh, it's not. But I never clicked through on John Resnick's uh, <laughs> Wikipedia page to be like, oh, he's the guy behind the, uh, that, the Goo Goo Dolls. That makes more sense. Because song- I was like, those are some Goo Goo Dolls ass songs. <laughs> yeah, and like th- that was their peak time, I suppose. Actually, City of Angels was their peak, and that was about four years before this. So the songs were also written by B.B. Mack, but both songs were performed by John Resnick on the soundtrack. The same 70-30 law for animation for the film was applied to the music, so sci-fi music sounds mixed with traditional music fiddles. Celtic, I don't get that at all. A Celtic influence. I actually think it's like 100% like traditional. I, I, I enjoy the score. I actually think it's very good and has like, some, but like it, it's a generic ass butt rock song with your generic ass I think they're very ill-fitting compared to the, the score I don't know I, I think it works for who they're trying to make Jim Hawkins seem like yeah. I, I think like the, because one of the songs plays over a montage of Jim Hawkins and Silver Bonding and then another plays over the credits so like really there's only one song in the actual film itself and I think that song is well deployed I think it fits who they're trying to tell you Jim Hawkins is meant to be yeah, I get it, but like, it's just if you're talking about that, you know, the fiddle music and the Celtic influence, and which only comes in every now and again. Yeah. There's really not that much of that in the film. Yeah, but the old feel of the film, like it's like seventy percent old, thirty percent new, if you know what I mean. Those pop songs just felt a little bit out of place. Well, there's only one of them technically. Yeah, that's just just me. They're enjoyable songs, and we will hear one of them. And Nicole has to do it. Yeah. Nicole doing butt. She rock. did not enjoy it. No, uh, I don't think butt rock comes naturally <laughs> to her. But uh, you mentioned the score there, Gar. Funnily enough, Howard also did Dinosaur. And I thought, especially the bit, uh, the the journey of the egg. I can't. I don't think that's the exact name of that piece. But the the bit at the start of Dinosaur it shares a lot of DNA with a lot of the score here. Yeah, it's a it's a fairly traditional film score. Sweeping adventure. Yeah, with the, I think it has a really good central theme, which is the reason I like it. And the thing was, it didn't really stick with me. But then when you played it earlier, I was like, yeah. oh yeah. yeah, it's like it's like yeah, it's a nice little central theme. You can take that and fit it into like twenty other movies, and it will work. Yeah, but it just it does rouse the blood a bit you know it's a nice little catchy catchy jingle there for this film yeah i like the score it's one of the few scores that i've gone back and actually listened to in the, the following days Car, there's not much here in terms of the legacy of this film it was nominated for best animated feature at the 75th academy awards this is a relatively new category and it's not really a barometer of quality really more just filling a shortlist. Yeah, but like, because so few animated films, even today, so few animated films can be ten uh, on a major level or made year to year. That basically, if you have a category with five nominees, you're going to get in there probably. Yeah, if you make a film, you'll probably get in there unless the film is garbage. As you noted, Gar, a planned franchise with sequel, directed video releases, and TV show were cancelled due to the financial disappointment of the film. By the so, way, it lost to a, a Spirited Away. It was released the same year, of course, as Lilo and Stitch. Yeah. So, like, even in like compared to other Disney films. It didn't have a hope of beating Lilo and Stitch. Yeah, it's it's quite down there in the pecking order. Other nominees that year, by the way, can Ice Age, which of course went on to be bizarrely a film that kept on making a billion dollars every time they made a new one. Yeah, which yeah, I, I I like the original Ice Age, but like every time you'd be like, oh, they're releasing Ice Age four. Who wants that? Then you check the box office gross, and like, oh, it made a billion dollars. But like you know, while I think that this cynical approach to animation is kind of sad, that you know you can churn things out and kids will watch it. I do think that like if you release an animated film at the right time 
time. You, you have somewhat of a captive audience, so you're always going to make money. You know, it's like you're bringing the kids to the cinema. You only have a few choices, you know. Yeah, and of course, uh, the other film it was nominated against was Spirit Stallion of Cimarron. I, in fairness, that's one of my favorite DreamWorks films. I, I do like that one. Jeff Katzenberg desperately wanted that one to win, didn't he? Yeah, so overall, girl, I may be a bit lower on Treasure Planet than you. I think it's fine. I think you'll watch it. You won't love it or hate it, and you'll never think about it again once it's over. I'm, yeah, I'm, I liked it surprisingly more than I thought, especially because, as I said, I've seen it, unlike um, Atlantis or Dinosaur or uh, Fantasia 2000. And I, I didn't remember loving it when I first watched it. And to be fair, like when I watched it again, I'm like, I vaguely remember this, but I don't remember like the the minute-to-minute details. So clearly it didn't leave that much of an impression on me. But when I rewatched it, I quite like it. As I said, it, su- it does suffer from being uh, so close to Atlantis and so similar to Atlantis. But if you were to not watch Atlantis and you were to just sit down and watch this film, I think what you would get is a very enjoyable, solid adventure film with a nice little story there about a father figure, uh, a good score, some great action, and it's actually quite pretty. So, yeah. and it has Niles doing Niles. So, yeah. if you're a big Frasier fan and you want more Frasier, he's just doing Niles. So. I think you're right. The sum of its parts do create a, a decent and enjoyable film. I, but I just, the, my point is like, it's not one of those ones like, oh, I'll sit down and like, what will I watch? You know, and even out of the, out of the ones we've talked about most recently, the ones that are lesser known or, or, or during this period almost forgotten. I'd go back to Atlantis. Of course, I'd go back to Lilo and Stitch. I wouldn't go back to Fantasia 2000. And I think this What would, about Emperor's New Groove, Kent? Uh, again, I, 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 I... Would you go back to that? It's it's down the list for me. And, and so is this. So I, I think it's ahead of Emperor's New Groove but it's not one of my favourites. It hasn't captured my imagination and heart care. I said more love for this than Atlantis, less love for Emperor's New Groove. That's the takeaway from this podcast. More people should enjoy these fun adventure films that are better than Black Cauldron. They are the legacy of Black Cauldron fulfilled, Ken. Yes, the, the trilogy complete. All right, you Disney dogs, we've nearly come to the end of our show for another week. Resident musical expert Nicole is coming up in just a few minutes with a song from this week's movie. It's the perfect end to the show every week, so be sure to stick around for that after the credits. New episodes of Magic by Design drop every Monday, where all magical podcasts are downloaded. Stop by our website at magicbydesign.buzzsprout.com to find a full list of podcast platforms. We are literally everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, you name it, we're on it. Very solid uh, Chris Traeger impression there, Ken. What? You were like, we are literally everywhere. Oh, yeah. Ken Ken fell into Chris Traeger without even realizing. God. It's so ingrained in me that I don't even notice anymore. Stop pooping. (laughs) Stop watching Disney films. We are also active on all your favorite social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash magic by design pod on Twitter at magic design pod and on the Insta at magic by design pod. If you're liking the vibe of our weekly Disney movie breakdowns and want to support the show, please do consider giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Five stars, please. You can also share the podcast on your socials or even recommend the show to a fellow Disney fan. If you give us a five star review, we will send you a PDF of a treasure map to find some bountiful beauty of your own which may or may not be a placemat from a themed restaurant who knows Mm. i want a a placemat from a themed restaurant exactly so give the podcast five stars then i can be like find the thing but what if you can't work it out well then you don't deserve the treasure that's true those mazes can be hard to figure out we'll be back next week at the same time same place with a review of disney's 44th animated feature brother bear brother bear i'm brother bear back to a phil collins movie yeah but until then stay safe and remember You've got the makings of greatness in you, but you've got to take the helm and chart your own course. Now then, Nicole is here to close out the show with a space shanty, Always Know Where You Are from Treasure Planet. Thanks for listening and take us away, Miss Nicole. 
Hello there, my Disney fanatics. It's me, your musical correspondent, Nicole, coming to you live from my bedroom. This week, we're adventuring to Treasure Planet. The score for this film was composed by familiar name John Newton Howard. Three songs appear in this movie, I'm Still Here or Jim's Theme, is written and performed by Goo Goo Dolls frontman John Resnick. This single was released by Resnick separate from the Goo Goo Dolls and was a moderate success in the pop charts. Resnick also wrote the song Always Know Where You Are for the movie and sung it for the film, while B.B. Mack performed the song on the soundtrack. It said that John Resnick was chosen to write the songs as he could easily relate to the rebel with a cause angst experienced by main character Jim. The third song that appears in the film is an old version of Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me, performed by Martin Short. This is uncredited and doesn't appear in the soundtrack. Unfortunately, the music made for this movie was not nominated for any award after its release. This week, I'm taking a look at Always Know Where You Are. Bear with listeners. This is a song in a super low male key, so I go between two octaves of my voice to make it sound okay. And the backing track is pretty atrocious. Still, I hope you enjoy it. would feel like home Now I'm forever far away and I, I always thought I'd end up here alone Somehow the world has changed and I've come home to give you back the things they took from you and I feel you now I'm not alone I'll always know where you And when I see myself, I always know where you are, where you are. And I found something that was always there. Sometimes it's gotta hurt before you feel. But now I'm strong and I won't heal Except to thank who's watching over me And somehow I feel so strong And have begun to be the one I never thought I'd be And I feel you now, I'm not alone I'll always know where you And when I see myself, I always know where you are, where you are. Now, it's all so clear and I believe that everything's been opened up to me. And I feel you now, I'm not alone, I'll always know, I'll always know where you are. And when I see myself, I always know where you are. And when I feel the sun, I always know where you And when I see myself, I always know where you are, where you are.